Hello and welcome to the November 2018 edition of Organising to Win, the trade union podcast from Unison Northwest. In our last episode of this year, I'll be speaking to American union organiser and communication specialist CJ Grimes, whose work on the Fight for 15 campaigns brought together thousands of fast food workers across the United States to fight against poverty wages in their industry, and uh, particularly making use of digital organising techniques to build a movement that crossed state and city boundaries. Before we do that, though... Regular listeners of this podcast will know that throughout 2018, we've been speaking to activists and organisers about the achievements of the Trade Union Congress as it celebrates its 150th anniversary. At our Northwest Policy Conference earlier in the autumn, we invited Ralph Darlington, Professor of Industrial Relations from Salford University's Business School, to give an alternative critique of the TUC's history, examining whether, alongside its uh, significant achievements, there's aspects of the TUC's history we might learn from in the future. I spoke to Ralph and asked him what prominent contrasting analyses were of the TUC's role over the course of the past century and a half and what we can learn from its first 150 years. I mean, I think really um, there are contrasting views on there. There's the view that um, the TUC are um, a sort of cart horse that really um, doesn't move very swiftly, has little sort of strategic direction, um, and is not providing the sort of input in, in a coordinated fashion that uh, is required. And I think the TUC and its general counsel in particular have often been criticised uh, for this by those on the left and, and other groups. Um, and when it comes to industrial disputes, which individual affiliates have been involved in, often there's been a sense that uh, the TC General Council have been very reluctant to get involved. And if it's done so, it's always been on fairly constricted terms um, and has been fairly restrained. So, I mean, I think the TC's, you know, for many years, historically, and even today, um, has been criticised on the this terrain. If you think of uh, the way in which TUC Congresses in recent years have passed resolutions in favour of considering uh, the TUC coordinating generalised strike action against conservative austerity measures, and yet the apparent inability or unwillingness of the TUC General Council to put that into effect, um, then you sense the, the degree... Um, um, of the view, the viewpoint of those who would be very critical. I mean, on the other hand, clearly there are many people who would argue that the TUC um, is has its own constraints um, by virtue of the fact that constitutionally and in terms of its internal power, um, it's limited in terms of the type of general direction it can provide for the union movement as a whole. Individual unions are individual unions. They have their own independence and forms of organisation and structures and so on, and not unsurprisingly, uh, often jealously want to guard that independence and autonomy and are fairly reluctant whilst they see the, the role of a general peak-level union body providing overall uh, assistance and direction, in particular in relation to government, um, they're very hesitant about the idea of having their internal powers usurped, uh, particularly over you know immediate collective bargaining issues which their members are involved in, and so um, you know that one has to take this into account. And having said that, I think it's also the case that you know as people would argue, um, notwithstanding such constraints, the TUC have often been willing um, to really give sort of strategic direction. And I think one of the most interesting and exciting 
and important uh, developments which took place at the recent Congress was the decision to make 2019 the year of the young worker. Um, and I think this is an example of where the TUC does show its potential, that it quite rightly it's identified um, the fact that there's a huge swathe of, uh, of employment um, in which unions are not present and it, notwithstanding the organising initiatives which the TUC have been involved in over the last 20 years, which, you know, at best have stemmed some of the decline in some areas, but overall it's not been an enormous success, would have been considerably worse if there hadn't have been that organising initiative, but really it's not broken out of the main centres in which unions were already present. So the, the idea of trying to strategically look towards these completely new areas areas of employment, mm. um, where there are young, precarious workers in insecure work, low pay and so on, um, and to come up with ideas and ways of how this might be done. I think that's a good example of, of the TUC acting in this sort of strategic fashion. So you've mentioned in, you mentioned in your discussion paper, you know, some of the uh, examples that perhaps are examples of where the TUC has, has constrained workers' struggle, perhaps in certain areas. You, you talk about um, the general strike itself, although they coordinated it, of course. Also the miners' strike, um, Pentonville. Um, dispute, the Pentwell Five. Um, I mean, it, looking at that positive role, you mentioned uh, the, the McStrike stuff, the, uh, the the work in the gig economy. Given the constraints that TUC has of not being a, you know, being essentially a voice of its affiliates, what role do you think the TUC could have in stimulating um, independent workers' organisations in those areas of the economy where we don't have uh, don't have union organisation? How can they do that in practice? best do you think i mean you know they um can do what they're trying to do which is to direct unions attention uh to target it they seems to me have to play a role in supporting those groups or those individual unions who are making real attempts to make inroads in those areas i mean i think one of the most interesting phenomena of the last two or three years has been the way in which, you know, because for many years that arena of employment, the growing gig economy, the plat platform work, the growth of the hospitality or retail sector, in which, you know, to be honest, we're talking about very difficult areas for unions to get a base in because they're not there already, they're small workplaces, there's insecure work, there's often people only work for short periods of time and so on. And for, for some people, I think people have assumed that that's an, an organisable group, um, that it's not going to be possible for unions to build in those areas. But I think one of the most, as I say, exciting developments is, is the way in which, uh, for example, some of the more radical, small, independent unions, the United Voices of the World, the Independent Workers of Great Britain, uh, but also some of the, you know, more exist, still small, but existing unions like the Bakers Union, or like Unite, actually, when it comes comes to the TGI Fridays, have put effort into successfully um, attracting these young workers. And I think they've done this by new types of tactics. I mean, they've, first of all, um, adopted um, more sort of direct direct action forms of, of activity, um, uh, as well as strike action. They've, you know, been very, um, uh, seen it as centrally important to involve other groups, other social movement and social forces, the social ju justice movements, and then to try to find ways in which they're organised 
organisation. I think this is particularly the case in, in terms of the Independent Workers Union and, and United Voice of the World, can create internal structures which are conducive to young people coming in. So um, these are things which I think are have been innovative attempts to break into this new ground. And it seems to me, you know, at the very minimum, the TUC needs to throw its weight in supporting these initiatives. What's interesting, and slight, slight bit of tension, I suspect, is the way in which these independent unions are not affiliated to the TUC because they fear um, the sort of bureaucratic official dead weight of the TUC, which they have assumed is the historical legacy, and are reluctant to allow their more radical, innovative forms of activity being smothered um, by what they perceive as being fairly you know, bureaucratic unions. Um, I mean, one way, the only way that the TUC is going to overcome that and undermine such views is really to, to, to you know, throw resources into supporting groups of workers who are prepared to take action. And those, even those unions which are not currently members of, of, of TUC-based organisations. But I think the real lesson here is, you know, the Work Smart initiative, the, the sort of pilot to find new ways of a new language and a new medium to attract young workers who are not members of unions to, to make to encourage them to feel a sense of dissatisfaction with their work and the, the, the unions might be a means of redressing this. I think that's you know a very good initiative and it's important that we that type of activity is taken taken into. And the use of social media by some of these new independent radical unions has been very extensive. But I think at the same time what those new unions have demonstrated is that sometimes the old-fashioned style of action, strike action as well, and not just, you know, public profile lobbies, shame, tax shaming, um, and public, you know, events in which they invite people to stand outside a shop, that's important. But actually trying to get groups of workers to take strikes has been a central core of their activity. And it may appear to be old fashioned in some respects, but it, it seems to work. And the, the strike, which has been called uh, by four different areas within the hospitality industry on Thursday, 4th of October, uh, at Weatherspoons, TGI Fridays, Uber Eats um, and McDonald's, I think is a fantastically exciting new development. And that's precisely the, the type of activity which I think the TUC could completely throw its weight behind and try and encourage other groups of, of, uh, other, other unions to, to step on board there and to and give it the level of solidarity that it deserves. So briefly then, this might, might be a, and last of all, might be a difficult one to answer briefly, but in the context of your uh, your paper and your analysis of the TUC's 150-year history. Um, what do you think are the main lessons that can be learned um, from that 150 years um, for the next 150? You see, for me, one of the interesting things is the way which... Because, I mean, you know, one can make suggestions for a peak-level organisation like the TUC, but it's, that's a sort of top-down initiative. And it's constrained by the problems which I mentioned of... of independent autonomy so whether it's it is going to be delivered in any great way at that level i think is is questionable at least that's the experience of the last 150 years what has tended to happen and if we're looking at the sort of existential problem that unions are faced with it is this aging membership the the membership is not only a fraction of the workforce as a whole in the uk but it's also a predominantly aging membership so in order to break into these new areas 
it requires attracting young people. Now, if you look back historically and look at the times when unions have been at their greatest in terms of membership and strength, you know, one thinks of the strike waves of the late 1890s, the match girl uh, uh, strike, the Dockers dispute of that period, or you then think of the, the pre-First World War years, the labour unrest. These were kick-started by new unions. Um, they were new organisations that felt the need to organise those groups of workers who were unskilled, who, were, who had been ignored by the existing hitherto often very bureaucratic and conservative forms of organisation. And they played a key role in trying to uh, break into this new ground. So in that sense, what we're seeing at the moment has some sort of historical sort of parallels. But at the same time, you know, my sort of studies of these earlier periods of labour history also demonstrate that when you look at where the greatest growth in strike activity, and more importantly, where was the greatest areas of growth for trade union membership in both of the periods which I've mentioned, then they weren't amongst the small unions in the new and organised areas, they were amongst the existing organisations. And that was because the existing organisations took a leaf out of their books and recognised that you couldn't, they had to innovate, they had to change, they had to try to represent members in similar sorts of ways that these more radical and flamboyant forms of organisation were adopting. And when they did that, then they themselves could be a beneficiary of increased membership. And I suppose, you know, in conclusion, there is a link between um, mobilisation of members, fighting unionism, not necessarily just strikes, but that type of aggressive adversarial unionism, which makes workers feel that they are resisting employers and are standing up for them. And that then translating into workers feel um, engaged, wanting to be active in their organisation, creating more viable and more democratic forms of, of activity and, and levels of organisation, which in turn acts as a, an incentive to workers who aren't members of that organisation to join the trade union. So you have a sort of virtuous circle. Um, and that's the lesson for me for, for, from, from labour history, that um, it takes a bit of a fight, it takes mobilisation if unions are to, to really pull out of the ghetto and really be able to transform their organisations and break into completely new ground. It's not just what is done in those new areas of employment which will be crucial, it's what's done in the existing areas where unions are based. If they're to be meaningful, then they've got to show that they can fight and win. And that, in turn, will then recruit new members and revitalise and re, you know, regenerate the unions. That's Professor Ralph Darlington from Salford University's Business School. Well, the Fight for 15 campaign, um, as I mentioned earlier, began in 2012 when 200 fast food workers walked off the job to demand $15 an hour and union rights in New York City. Now, in 2018, the campaign is a global movement in over 300 cities on six continents. It succeeded in winning raises for 22 million people across the United States, including 10 million workers who are now on their way to get $15 an hour, all because they organised and acted collectively. CJ Grimes, former organising director of the SEIU union, led the digital strategy behind the campaign and is now the senior vice president at campaign communications consultancy MNR. I spoke to CJ at our Skills for Strength organising convention in March earlier this year and asked her a little bit about how it all began and what was so important about the digital aspect of the campaign. 
So the Fight for 15 was an effort on the part of fast food workers across the United States to raise wages to $15 an hour and win a union. And it began in uh, November of 2012 when 130 fast food workers walked off the job on November 29th in 2012 in New York City demanding higher pay. And they walked off the job, meaning they went on a wildcat strike for the day. And then that spread to six cities and then nine cities and then 100 cities until by the time um, I left the campaign, and it's still ongoing, I think they were in 350 cities on strike days. And what was the importance of digital organizing as part of uh, Fight for 15? Why was it so important? Well, digital organizing was central to the way that workers connected with each other and the way that the campaign was able to tell the story of what was happening. And the Fight for 15, the workers um, spread from one city to 300 cities through digital organizing tools, so through Facebook and Twitter, Instagram. Uh, people were communicating to get people were communicating with each other, and the the campaign itself was able to tell the story about what was happening and the rapid expansion using digital tools. And so workers were able to sign up uh, to become part of the campaign um, because it was there was a website, there were. Um, uh, uh, memes on Facebook people could click on and folks would um, would expand into new cities by um, you know offering content to their brothers and sisters around the country. And how did that help it grow? So, so you know you started off in how many cities did you say sorry at the beginning? We started in one. Yeah. And then we went to I think six or seven and then we had nine and then from nine um, where we had there were there were organizers working actively with workers we then exploded into 60 in a matter of months and that happened through a lot of digital outreach and what did you find were the the most effective platforms for that digital outreach um, with you know with that specific campaign and do you think that in your experience it can depend on the campaign or you know what what, what were the main lessons learned there Um, I think it does depend on the type of campaign uh, Facebook, there were a lot of, there are just a lot of workers on Facebook. And so Facebook is, you know, not the most elegant solution to digital organizing in every case. Like there's less young people on Facebook now than there are on Instagram or Snapchat. Um, but in terms of a platform for advertising so that workers can communicate with each other that they don't, who don't know one another, Facebook's been a really great place to do that. And so we use primarily Facebook to do our recruitment and expansion. Uh, and a lot of workers, when we we found that when organizers um, got on the ground or when workers were organizing one another, when they would go and uh, try to sort of cold call one another uh, at different restaurants, they would find, they'd say, oh yeah, I know the Fight for 15. I saw you on Facebook. And so there was a lot of um, sort of w- worker um uh, sort of consumption of content, even if they weren't responding to the stuff immediately. And then, of course, there's a lot of, you know, there's some Twitter, Instagram, like I said, um, but I'd say Facebook was probably our main uh, source of expansion. And, you know, one thing that really um, hit me when I looked at the campaign was the use of video as well, the, the use of, uh, especially with McDonald's. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and how you'd used video to kind of highlight some of the um, some of the, 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 the issues involved for, for McDonald's workers, but also, you know, with um, with some of the ways that the videos worked, quite a, I think quite an innovative way of pointing the finger at how people, you know, were needing to claim state benefits, how McDonald's were actually harming the economy potentially with some of these low-paid jobs and stuff. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, well, everything sort of came out of how the workers were talking about their work and what they identified as the main. Um, problems with their jobs. And so we, from the workers, the organizers would listen to workers and the workers would talk a lot about how, uh, 
they had McDonald's had this website that was a budgeting tool for workers. And when you go on the website, it turns out that McDonald's is recommending that you have two jobs and that they put together a fake budget for workers that um, suggested that, you know, heat would be zero dollars a month and, you know, just water would be zero dollars a month. Health care would be twenty dollars a month. No budget for items for food or clothing. I mean, it was just a ridiculous um, it was a ridiculous starting point for most low-wage workers who have to support themselves, which is the majority of you know McDonald's employees. And so workers kept sort of brought things like that to our attention, real opportunities um, to sort of highlight to the general public how what a terrible employer McDonald's was, that it was paying people very little, that they knew how little they were paying people, that they were giving, that they, uh, uh, and that the only option left for workers who were earning the very low pay that McDonald's offered them was to go on public assistance, which in the United States means uh, government assistance for buying food and um, and paying your bills. And that type of government assistance, you know, everyone should have access to it, in my opinion, if you can't pay your bills. But more to the point, it's a taxpayer subsidy of those low wages. And so we found that when also found out that when workers were uh, struggling to pay their bills and they raised this with their employer, their employer had a practice of suggesting that they go and sign up for these government programs. Mm-hmm. And so the campaign, like, you know, we always, we were worker led. And so after hearing these stories again and again and again, we went to some academics and we asked academics to sort of research the issue. And some facts sort of emerged and we decided to have a very public conversation about this where we made several videos, which I'll get to. And so we realized through academic research that what workers were experiencing was obviously the thing that was happening. The fast food industry as a whole was probably generating about $7 billion a year in public assistance need. And McDonald's in particular was generating some extremely large portion of that, several billion dollars. And so we were able to say publicly, you know, X billion dollars is coming out of your pockets to, to, to subsidize these low wages. And we didn't just say that. We made a video where we showed screenshots of these crazy websites that McDonald's had. We had um, recorded conversations of employers telling workers that they should go claim public assistance benefits. And we were very, it was a very engaging um, set of videos that weren't just, it wasn't very dry. It was like jaw-droppingly, um, it was just staggering the way that the employer was demeaning people and frankly expecting taxpayers to put the bill. So we released these videos and we made a very good job of making sure that the press saw them. And so the issues that we discussed, so the videos got some traction online. Mm-hmm. But the most important part is that because we were able to tell the story in the workers' own words, in an engaging way like video, the issue itself went viral. And mm-hmm. so reporters really dug in on their own. They did their own investigative reporting, and they talked even more about sort of uh, what these websites said and how flat-footed the company was caught by all this and how out of touch they were with America and how, frankly, most Americans did not think that they should be footing the bill for the low-wage, low-road employers like McDonald's. And so what we found is that the videos were a great tactic for telling a broader story, even beyond just like the video itself was good, but because it was engaging and aimed uh, toward the media to pick mm-hmm. up and do with as they will, mm-hmm. they took did a really good job of sort of taking the issue and really pushing it. Right. So yeah, I suppose you kind of answered my next question in a way, but um, do you think specifically then you thought about which um, audience you talked before about?
about how um, you know you you tailor uh, material to different sections of your audience to either workers or to the general public to the media. What kind of percentage of the online uh, material that you produced were, were, was kind of going to, was targeted at the media, and did you sometimes have to think about targeting the public to get to the media? Yeah, we did. I mean, the thing that was the most important thing about sort of the way we used um, digital content online is that it's always in workers' words from the workers' perspectives because the campaign was um, sort of an expression of what, what the workers were doing. But we understand uh, as organizers that uh, the media isn't really listening to workers on its own. And so our job was to take what was happening with workers and make sure that we... Um, we framed it and gave it to the media or to the general public in a way that uh, made sure that they saw it. Because the internet is just like any other, it's like the world. It, people are disaggregated just because, like, I live in a neighborhood in Portland, Oregon, a city on the very far west coast of the United States, and I don't know what happens in the other neighborhoods in my town unless I'm looking for it or I know somebody over there or somebody brings it to my attention. And so the internet is just like the, a, a, ge a geographic location. So we have to, if we want somebody like reporters or decision makers to know what's happening, we have to make sure that we create something that they and then serve it to them to see. Hmm. And so the campaign was very uh, smart about listening to what the workers were saying and making sure that our job was to take that and serve it to reporters or to the decision makers so that the workers were part of the, those conversations. And so Every 100% of what we did was in worker voice, hmm. meaning was from the workers to people. But if we were trying to talk to reporters, we would, you know, versus workers themselves. And when workers are talking to each other, that was the easiest thing because they can do that better than we can. But we would probably spend most of our time making sure that it was decision makers and reporters who can who can understand what the workers are saying because they weren't listening otherwise. And thinking about the workers as an audience themselves, like in, in of themselves, how did you... Because I think one problem that uh, we hear from activists and branches who try digital organising often is that uh, they'll put something out there like a petition, they'll get maybe some traction on it, but they find it difficult to translate that into offline action. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the worker audience, how did you um, build offline engagement and, and organise those workers from that digital start point mm -hmm. so we often had um uh well it was not rocket surgery but it was work meaning it wasn't difficult or complicated but it didn't happen magically and so a big mistake that i made when i began working uh when i began running the campaign was that i thought if you just put it out there something would happen you just put it out there, just put it on the internet, and then magically people would kind of show up and want to participate. And I was very disappointed by that because they didn't. And I found that that's actually pretty normal, that it's no less difficult to get somebody to show up to something from online as it is offline. And we all know about the 30% rule or the rule of halves or whatever the rule is in your campaign where you ask 20 people and how many show up. Is it generally 20? No. And that is actually the, the in-person ask is the highest quality ask to get somebody to do something. So online, it gets lower and lower and lower. So emails have like a 10 or 12% open rate on average. Sometimes they're much higher depending on what's going on. Text messages, everybody sees them, but the click-through rates are in the digit, single digit percents. Online, if people see something on social media, it's like a 0.01% 
likely they're going to click through, let alone show up to something. And so I was, it was, it was a conundrum. I was like, well, how do we? And so what we did is we designed a system where we would make sure that workers were seeing content. Sometimes we would put some money behind things. So we would pay to make sure people were seeing um, like an opportunity to join the campaign. So like an ad or something that said, would you like to join the campaign? Here, click here to join. Click here to be involved. And so when workers clicked on it, they would then uh, go to a website. They would type in their information. And then organizers would, be, would get a list of those people to call within 24 hours. And so the organizer could make a, an, an outreach to that person, like a face-to-face contact and say, hey, your coworkers are forming a union. Here's how that's happening. And then explain to them what the campaign was about and then get them engaged. And so that was, it, there was no magic point where people just showed up. Like we were very deliberate about putting organizers in that conversation early. So within 24 hours of engaging online with your campaign, they had a phone call from an organizer. And we tested this. I mean, we tried, you know, a couple months afterwards. We tried 72 hours. But we found that at the 24-hour mark was a 50% drop-off rate. And so getting a hold of somebody right away mattered because they remembered that they'd signed and they were really engaged. If I could, I'd make it 12 hours. But that was we found that to be difficult to do um, given people's workloads. So the rule was 24 hours. That was CJ Grimes talking to me in March this year at Skills for Strength. Well, that's all we've got time for uh, this year. But if you're interested in further information and resources concerning the topics discussed in this program, as well as access to previous episodes of the podcast, then head over to our website at www.unisonnw.org forward slash podcast. And you'll find all of that there. And, and don't forget to subscribe to us on YouTube uh, or iTunes or your favorite podcast platform as well by searching for Organising to Win and hitting subscribe. We'll be back next year in 20. 20- 2019 with more regular programs exploring even more contemporary trade union issues and speaking with many more guests from across our movement but for now from all of us have a wonderful christmas and a happy new year and don't forget if you are a unison northwest activist to register for next year's 2019 skills for strength convention um, and you can find more information about that at www.unisonnw.org forward slash skills for strength thanks for listening